Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and it is especially good to see all of you this week. It's been a long week, to say the least. It's been a long two weeks since we were all here together. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord meets us here. He promises to, and I'm thankful that he does. Um, I, I pray we are encouraged through the songs and the prayers and the teaching and the Lord's Supper because, because Houston is a needy city, more needy today than it was last week. And the people of God are going to need the presence of God and the power of God if we're going to bring hope and light to our city. In the Bible, water symbolizes a number of different things. Um, it can represent chaos and destruction, but it can also represent cleansing and new creation, restoration. In the case of Christian baptism, it means both of these things. In baptism, we are united to Christ who suffered chaos and destruction in our place. But we are, we are also cleansed and resurrected with Christ as new creations, fully restored. And in the city of Houston today, I, I think it's easy to see the destruction. Many of our neighbors have lost their homes. Some of our neighbors have lost their lives. People are tired. People are hungry. People do not know what the future holds. But we are not without hope. As the floodwaters recede, this, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God is hovering ready and willing to bring order to the chaos. God is on the move, and the people of God are on the move with him. And when everything is said and done, there will be new creation and restoration to speak of. God's going to use you to accomplish that. Today we're continuing our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and as we'll see, the, the 13 verses we're covering today are appropriate. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in order to defend and clarify the Christian gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And today, I, I'm really just hoping to convey one simple yet world-changing message, that Christ has set us free. Christ has set us free to obey our God by loving our neighbor. Let's turn to the Bible. First of all, uh, Paul does not divide his letter into a theology section and a Christian living section. That's something that we're tempted to do, but Paul, wouldn't see, Paul would not have drawn much distinction between doctrine and practice, theology and ethics, what we believe and how we live. They're, they're inextricably connected. And so having argued his case for Christian faith as the sole basis for justification in Christ, Paul seamlessly transitions into describing what that Christian faith looks like in everyday life. Let's jump straight to verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither Jew nor Gentile counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul speaks of a time when God will declare publicly and finally that all those who trust in the faithfulness of Jesus really are justified, 
vindicated, exonerated on the basis of Jesus' obedience. This is the hope of righteousness, and we wait for it by the Spirit. Or in other words, we do not wait for it by the flesh. Think about it. The faithful Jewish Christians, the faithful Jewish Christians like Paul, were not looking to circumcision and Judaism for what only Jesus could give them. And so the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, definitely did not need to look to circumcision and Judaism for what only Jesus could give them. If you're wondering today whether this future hope of righteousness is really for you, Paul is speaking to you. If you want evidence here and now that you are indeed a child of Abraham, if you want evidence here and now that your inheritance really is secure and waiting for you, you should look not to the rules you've followed or the rituals you've performed. You should look to this new life of faith you have in the Spirit. And what is this new life you have in the Spirit? It, it is a life of faith working through love. Faith working through love. It's the essence of the Christian life, and it's something that only the Holy Spirit can produce. Faith is what matters more than anything else, but, but this is not merely a naked faith. This is a faith arrayed in the finest of garments. We're not talking about simply a, a credible profession of a certain set of doctrines. We're talking about a life of faith working, working, working through love. This is a faith that repents and loves and welcomes and forgives and serves. You see, God, God worked through the Jewish people to welcome the Gentiles into his family. God gave his love to the Jewish people, and he desired to see his love working through them in order to welcome the outsiders. And now, says Paul, God is working through both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians together to welcome the entire world into his family. He has given his love to us and he desires to see his love working through us to welcome the outsider. We are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. How? By the Spirit, by faith. Where there is faith working through love, the Holy Spirit is present and active. I'd like to briefly draw your attention to Galatians 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, now notice the similarities between this verse and chapter 5, verse 6. In chapter 5, Paul says, only faith working through love counts for anything. Then in chapter 6, Paul says, only a new creation counts for anything. And so what can we conclude? New creation looks like faith working through love. New creation looks like faith working through love. If God brings new creation to Houston, it's going to look like faith working through love. Let's read verses 7 to 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. 
But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yikes. Paul uses a lot of imagery in these verses. Uh, We're on a racetrack in verse 7. We're in a courtroom in verse 8. We're in a kitchen in verse 9. We're back in the courtroom in verse 10. And then verse 12 is shocking. Um, But before we we get to that, I want to take a closer look at verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does Paul mean by that? Well, if you're baking a loaf of bread, leaven is what causes the bread to rise. But it, o- it only takes a, a few grains of leaven for the leaven to work its way through the entire loaf. And this leaven imagery was loaded language for the Jews. The Jewish people had been commanded by God to observe their Passover festival with unleavened bread. During the Passover season, leaven was altogether banished from Jewish households. See, unleavened bread is very flat and plain. It it was understood to represent humility rather than being puffed up with pride. And because no extra ingredients were added, it was also a symbol of purity. And so Paul is painting a familiar and obvious picture of compromise. He says, if you compromise on this seemingly small issue, the error is going to multiply itself through everything else. If you look to rules and rituals for righteousness and right standing with God rather than simply looking to Christ by faith, you lose everything. So this was not a minor mistake. And that's important to establish in light of verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, to be fair, the the English translation of this verse is actually more graphic than the original Greek. Um, The Greek is a little bit more nuanced, but it it does capture Paul's irony and sarcasm. The false teachers want to circumcise, do they? Why stop there? Why not cut themselves off completely? Now, the Bible has a lot of cutting off language because that's partly what circumcision was meant to represent. Uh, Much like baptism, circumcision had layered meaning. The Jews were not only cleansed through circumcision, they were warned. They were warned not to be cut off from Israel. It also pointed forward to Christ, who was cursed and cut off from God's blessing so that God's people could be saved. Colossians chapter 2 explicitly refers to Christ's death as a circumcision. And so I I do think there's a play on words to be appreciated here, Uh, but Paul's broader meaning is simple. He truly wants these false teachers to stop bearing their poisonous fruit. He wants them cut off in the sense that they would be fruitless. And so no, Paul is not, Paul is not making a friendly argument here. He's not shouldering up to his opponents saying, well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. Paul's not afraid to be warm and affectionate, but here he demonstrates the courage and boldness required to protect people he loves. And so Paul forbids depending upon circumcision rather than depending upon Christ alone. But he doesn't simply forbid, he also exhorts. He doesn't simply tell them what they should not do. He also tells them what they should do instead. 
verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You were called to freedom, brothers. What sort of freedom is Paul talking about here? I think there's a couple different ways we could think about it, but in one sense, the people of God have been set free from the Jewish law so that the church can be truly diverse. We are set free from Judaism so that the gospel can, can get to the nations. Set free from the law, the church can move freely from tribe to tribe, nation to nation, tongue to tongue. We are set free to fulfill mankind's original purpose, which was, which was to fill the earth with God's glory. So, requiring converts to become Jewish not only slowed down the mission of the church, it actually undermined the mission of the church. It created a homogenous people, unified by their sameness. But God wanted a diverse people unified despite their differences. And by the way, the healing of division is one thing that I hope we get to see in the wake of Harvey. We've already gotten to see glimpses of it on the news. Unity despite our differences. In another sense, the people of God have been set free because their deepest, most fundamental need has already been met. Thanks to Jesus, the need to be saved from sin has been met. And so those who have been set free by Jesus are like Houstonians whose homes were spared in the flood. Compared to neighbors who lost their homes, we who were spared have much. And there's real freedom in having your needs met. There's real freedom in having your needs met. And the question then becomes, how should we use that freedom? Should we go back to our jobs on Tuesday morning without giving a second thought to our suffering neighbors? Or should faith work through love? Americans have always been enamored with the idea of freedom. But freedom in our society has come to mean freedom from everything. We pursue freedom not, not necessarily so that we can use our freedom for good. We want it for its own sake. Freedom without limits. Freedom to define ourselves, which is, which is really just self-idolatry. Freedom from judgment, no matter what I do. Freedom to achieve my dreams at the expense of others. Freedom to act without consequence. But hang with me here. Freedom only works if we have rules. Think about it. What if, after winning the Revolutionary War, we had never sat down to ratify the U.S. Constitution? What if, after winning our freedom, we never instituted rules? What if, after winning our freedom, the governing authorities just gave way to anarchy? That would be a terrible use of freedom, right? In fact, that's not, that's not much of a freedom worth having. And when a man is released from prison, we say that he is set free. 
but we don't mean that he's set free to do whatever he pleases. He's no longer a captive, but he's still subject to the governing authorities. And so the only freedom worth having is a limited freedom. The only freedom worth having is a freedom subject to authority. Christ, Christ has made us free. Free to live in the kingdom for which he is the king. And so we are free so long as we cling to him who is our freedom. We are free so long as we obey him who is our freedom. If you think that's a cheap form of freedom, I'm afraid you've accepted our society's definition of it. In fact, this is the only true type of freedom. We're, We're free from the tyranny of sin. We're free from the tyranny of our own flesh. We are free to live like limited, created beings in submission to a creator who knows better than we do. So Paul's definition of freedom does not free us from the need to obey God. Freedom must never come unhinged from morality. Or in the Bible's terms, freedom must not be an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom is for love. Freedom is for love. In love, because we are free, we must serve one another. Anybody mind if I quote Pat Benatar? I'm gonna. In the words of Pat Benatar, darling of 80s rock, love is a battlefield. (laughs) Really, the Christian life is a battlefield. Under the law, the Jews were kept in the barracks. Under paganism, the Gentiles were prisoners of war, but now because of Jesus, we are all set free. And here's the thing. We are set free in order to fight the battle. And how do Christians fight? We fight like Jesus fought. We lay down our lives for our neighbors. We let go of our preferences. We let go of our selfish ambition. We set aside our fears and discomforts and insecurities. We step out into the world and we sacrifice all of these things so that other people can be free too. In Houston right now, the battlefield is more visible than usual. We're getting to see some of humanity's worst and we're getting to see some of humanity's best. In the midst of catastrophe like this, even the most individualistic people begin to value community. Most of us know our neighbors better than we did a week ago. Let's use that. Let's use that to bring relationship and reconciliation to our city. Houston is fertile soil for friendship and love and the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the flood was a good thing. It wasn't. It was a tragedy. But we're the church and we've got work to do. Is when our city is hurting, we spring to action. When our neighbors are hurting, we spring to action. We spring to action because our faith is working through love. And we've placed our faith in a God who makes the most of tragedy. Last week, 
is already on its way to becoming history. Soon the news networks are going to stop talking about Harvey. Soon the people who are far from this will begin to just move on, and many already have, and that's understandable. But we've planted roots here. We have the privilege of, of staying long after the floodwaters recede. We have the honor of actually loving real people with real acts of service, face to face, indefinitely, until the job is done. Because one day, natural disaster and death and theft and hunger will be things of the past. In fact, they'll come untrue. But today the Lord has seen fit to let his light shine brightest in the midst of the deepest darkness. Christian, that's, that's the great privilege of your life. Obeying your God by serving your neighbor, by loving your neighbor. For better or for worse, rain or shine. Jesus said that cups of water and plates of food and blankets and jackets and visiting the poor are the great acts of love. That's how the kingdom comes. For not with swords loud clashing nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. Use your freedom to obey your God by loving your neighbor. Use your freedom to obey your God by loving your neighbor. Let's serve the people of Houston and let's Let's rendezvous here next week to commune with God and to commune with one another and to receive encouragement, exhortation, and all the energy and nourishment we need to go out there and do it again. And may the, the waters of destruction give way to new creation as faith works through love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for hope. Thank you for hope. We know that you sit enthroned over the flood. And so help us to trust you in the midst of disaster. Holy Spirit, give us, give us a faith that works through love. Give us faith that works through love. Help us to love our neighbors. And give us perseverance for the weeks and months ahead, they're going to be long. Help us to be the type of church Houston needs us to be right now, the type of church that gives glory to you. And we ask that you would bring restoration to our city, bring new creation to our city. We ask that you would use us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.